I had absolutely no idea that this study was going to last this long. I had no idea. But it has, and the Lord has been faithful, at least with respect to teaching me a few things. And I'm very, very, very grateful. But this morning, we're going to open up chapter 11. And our text verse is going to be 11, verse 1. Revelation 11, verse 1. I am going to be reading uh, from the NIV, as I always do, if you happen to be a visitor here and not know that. I just want to let you know, and those who uh, might be picking this up uh, as it is rebroadcast elsewhere, uh, the NIV is what I, it's my go-to. So with that said, let's read. I was given a read. Speaking of reads, I was given a read like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. This morning, I have pretty much a singular purpose, and that's, we're not going to delve into a whole lot of the uh, 11th chapter this morning. In fact, we're going to deal exclusively with chapter, or with verse 1. One honorable mention of verse later in the chapter, but we're not covering that to any detail at all. And my uh, uh, purpose this morning is basically to just lay a foundation. We just want to lay a foundation because something has happened in the book of the Revelation prior to this point that at least I have not apprised you of because of the nature of this study. I, I, I wasn't going into every subtle nuance of the Revelation intentionally as I told you and have told you successively uh, since the beginning of this uh, series. So with that said, something has happened in the Revelation that we find out about in verse 1. And we will touch on that in just a matter of minutes. But right now, my purpose, and it's only this, the only purpose I've got this morning, is to lay a foundation so that we can properly understand what is going to transpire from that point forward in the Revelation. Okay? Joseph Seiss, I have referred to him on multiple occasions, but Joseph Seiss said this, We here come upon ground which has been very trying to expositors. The great battleground of conflicting systems and the burial ground of many a fond conceit and learned fancy. Alfred has given it as his opinion that the chapter on which we now enter is, and this is Al uh, Alfred speaking now, is undoubtedly one of the most difficult in the whole apocalypse, end quote. Seiss goes on and says, On all the prevalent theories for interpreting this book, he, referring to Alfred, he is certainly right in his opinion. And the difficulties of which, is, uh, and the difficulties of which he complains must remain till those theories are abandoned and other 
and another departure taken, end quote. According to Strauss, another great commentarian by the name of Barclay said this, This chapter is at one and the same time the most difficult and the most important chapter in the Revelation. That, that's not fun when you're in my position. Morris put it this way. In the 11th chapter of Revelation, we encounter one of the most extraordinary events and one of the most fascinating chapters in the book. The chapter division is arbitrary, since the scene is a continuation of that in chapter 10. Put pause. What he means by that is the fact that we've jumped from chapter 10 to chapter 11 is a completely arbitrary decision by those people who decided to put chapters and verses in the book. It doesn't mean a thing. As a matter of fact, that chapter division being arbitrary shouldn't even be there. Because chapter 11 is merely a continuation of what is happening in chapter 10. The second woe, as Morris continues, the pl- you remember the second woe, the plague with those demonic horse-like creatures, is just finishing its 13-month course in our text today. 13-month-long course. And the Lord Jesus Christ, appearing as the angel with the rainbow over his head, is still speaking to John. As you'll recall, chapter 10 concludes with the voice from heaven telling John to go and take the little book from the hand of the mighty angel. And when John walks up and says, hey, can I have that? The mighty angel says, yeah, take it. But he also says, and eat it. Right? And then just, and John describes what happens when he ingests this little book. It was sweet to his mouth, but sour to his stomach. And then that angel turns and says to him, You have to continue prophesying to many peoples, nations, kings, etc. Well, that doesn't stop right there just because we jump into chapter 11. Chapter 11 opens up with our text verse. I was given a reed and a measuring rod and was told by that self-same mighty angel who is, as we've driven into the ground by this time, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. So that chapter change is completely arbitrary and irrelevant, frankly. But now we understand the flow of chapters 10 into 11. Moving forward, our text this morning has something interesting going on in it. To the casual observer, this, it has this easily overlooked point of interest contained within it. John, as we know, is instructed by the mighty angel, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to measure the temple of God. In that, there is a point of interest that may, to some, be easily overlooked. And because of that, here's the thing. If you were to pick up a map of Israel, 
Let's shrink that. You pick up a map of Jerusalem. You're a tourist. You're, you're there and you're looking at a map of Jerusalem. Or maybe you don't have a map and maybe you look at an aerial photograph of Jerusalem proper. Or maybe a tight, close-in uh, uh, um, satellite photo. Or maybe you are so inclined as to have bought a ticket, got your passport, and headed on over into Israel, landed in Israel, and you decide to go visit Jerusalem in purpose, uh, um, on purpose, in person, and you journey from your hotel to go see the temple that John in verse 1 of chapter 11 is instructed to measure. You discover what this to some easily overlooked point of interest is that I mentioned just a moment ago. You spent all this time and all this money flying over to Israel. You've stopped at the airport. You've gotten a cheeseburger because you're hungry. And we all know international flights and their food are the most god-awful thing. It is the stepchild to, to hospital food. <laughs> The nurse over here is laughing. That's funny. I'm sorry right now. That's good. And you've gone and you ask someone, how do I get to the temple? You ask an Israeli or even a Muslim, and you know what they do? They do this. Really? You want to go to the temple? Yeah, I've traveled all the way from Corsicana, Texas. And they're going... Where? Yeah, and I want to see the temple. And they're like, how did you make it through security, much less get to Jerusalem and ask to see the temple? And you're thinking, what is wrong here? And our wonderful guide friend who you're speaking to on the streets of Jerusalem says this to you. There is no temple. A temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem. In fact, there hasn't been a temple of God in Jerusalem since 70 A.D. No temple. 70 A.D. is the date when Titus raised Jerusalem to the ground. Instead of being able to go see the temple of God, they go, I'll go show you the mosque. And you're like, huh? Instead, on exactly the place where the temple should be sitting, sits a Muslim mosque. You can see it right behind me. You've all seen this before. It's the Islamic Dome of the Rock. Every one of you have watched five minutes of television or been in the Bible or in church for, it, for no time. You've seen that. And that's where you would have gone. But you can't go there and see the temple of God. Dan Betzer. <laughs> Dan Betzer wrote this years And years ago, he said, Jesus knew. And he wrote this, incidentally, about Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23. 
And Jesus is looking down on Jerusalem, and he says some things to, basically, to himself. You can read it in 23, 37 through 38 if you want to, but Betzer writes about that experience where Jesus is speaking. He says, Jesus knew it was a matter of only four decades, four decades before Vespasian and Titus would arrive with Roman armies congregating on the, on, on the slopes of Mount Scopus to the north for the death thrust into the city. Four decades. The death tolls would be staggering. Not one. Not one of the entire city would be left standing. It broke the Lord's heart. That's what happened in 70 A.D. Vespasian showed up with Titus and Titus obliterated Jerusalem. He had already, one of his compatriots, had already annihilated Galilee. And they headed south. And they bulldozed Jerusalem. And Jesus sat there on the mountain. It sounds like when you read that passage in Matthew chapter 23, it's like he's speaking to himself. He's pondering. As opposed to holding court or giving audience to someone and speaking to them directly. And yet, with all of that having transpired, our text specifically states that John was to, quote, go and measure the temple of God. I think that it's worthy of note here that the first 14 verses of chapter 11 that we're in this morning, the first 14 verses of chapter 11 take place specifically in Jerusalem proper. Okay, So when we're told that John was told, go measure the temple, its altar, and the, worship, and the worshipers, and then the other events that occur throughout the rest of that chapter up until verse 14, all of that is happening within the confines of Jerusalem proper. Verses 15 through 19 they take place in heaven. Okay? But the bulk, the lion's share of this chapter is centered in Jerusalem. In fact, the tenor of this entire portion of chapter 11 is uniquely Jewish. Everything about it is Jewish. Now, with respect to the first 14 verses of chapter 11 being confined or taking place within Jerusalem. I want you to notice first, I mean, I'm just going to put the, uh, the, the case out there for you to understand that this is happening in Jerusalem. Um, notice first that the objects to be measured um, in verse 1 is the, you notice, is that verse up there? Can we take the dome down and put the, our, my text back up? <clears throat> I guess the dome wants to stay. Measure the temple of God. That's important. 
Okay? The temple of God. Its altar and the worshipers. So that's the first thing we need to understand. That, that he was told to measure by the Lord Jesus Christ the temple of God. There is only one location in the entire world where this could happen. That's Jerusalem. There is no other the temple of God anywhere else on planet earth. Okay? The temple of God is in Jerusalem. Of course, now this is just for those of you who are Bible scholars, and you know this to be a fact, both historically as well as biblically speaking, there were two additional, quote, temples, end quote, uh, built elsewhere, according to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. There were two other temples. Um, Jeroboam I, if you ever read the Kings and the Chronicles, you... Um, Jeroboam is a fixture. Jeroboam I, who was the first ruler of the newly seceded northern kingdom of Israel, established two sanctuaries to rival the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem shortly, whatever that actually means, after Solomon's death. One of these two additional temples was in Dan. Dan sits on the northern border of of Israel, and the other was in Bethel, which sits on the southern border of Israel, just across the border from Judah's northern border, very, very near Jerusalem. However, those temples could in no way, shape or form, be considered legitimate, as our scripture says, temples of God. And that's for two reasons. Number one, God had nothing to do with commissioning those two other temples. He had nothing to do with it at all. In fact, if you read uh, chapter 12 of 1 Kings, what you're going to find out is that Jeroboam I, he had, what would it be, economic, national uh, uh, issues that he was fearing, that everybody, because there was no temple in a now divided kingdom, you have Judah to the south, Israel to the north, ten kingdoms, uh, ten tribes in the north and the remaining down in south, he thought, well, since there's no temple up here, they're just going to go south. And they're going to go to Jerusalem. And they may stay. He was worried about this. And the Bible tells us explicitly that he has a major league confab with some of his bigwig people, and he says, what are we going to do about this? Well, what they do about it is they build two additional temples, one for the people who would have to travel a long ways south, up in Dan, and the other one, just for spite, let's throw one in Bethel, because right across the street is the temple in Jerusalem. Isn't it funny how you, you think you're doing something for God? Yeah. And you're really just being mean. That's the first reason. God had nothing to do with these temples. So they couldn't be a legitimate temple of God. The second reason is that these temples were established for the express purpose of worshiping not one, but two. One for Dan, one for Bethel. Golden calves! What is it with Israel and their preoccupation with cows and God? I mean, they're nowhere near India. J.I. Packer explained it this way. 
The problem with thou shalt not create any graven images, that of the Ten Commandments, you know, the problem is, is that in us, and let's remember, let's be perfectly frank, even though I don't think there's a single person named Frank in this room. Let's be perfectly frank. We could not possibly, as three-dimensional, technicolor dirt, hey, we may look good now, but once we die, what does the Bible say? Yeah, you're going back to dirt. Three-dimensional, technicolor. There's no way we could create an image of God in His totality. J.I. Packer talks about it. What our preoccupation, at least Israel's, was with bulls is power. Bulls are built like bulldozers. And we think of God as power. And we leave out every other unimaginably, unimaginably innumerable nuances of the person of God. He's not just power. He's every other holy and righteous thing that can possibly ever be conceived of, and most of which we cannot. Therefore, we don't build, we don't have icons of God. We do not create idols because we cannot capture who He is. And therefore, because we can't capture who God is in His totality, we skew our perspective on what we see of Him. And we just get it wrong every single time. Not only were these two temples built to worship two idols, but they were staffed with priests that weren't even Levites. Therefore, they can't serve as priests. So there are those two other temples. But in reality, we can't look at them as anything but bogus. So that's the thing about the temple of God. It can only happen in one place on planet Earth. In addition to all of that, verse 8 of our chapter speaks of, quote, the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd have no idea what we're talking about until you finish the sentence where also their Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, the great city, also figuratively referred to as Sodom and Egypt. But we know exactly where we're talking about here where also the Lord was crucified. Here, here, it doesn't get much more plain than that. These verses are referring to Jerusalem. So the question that we face this morning in my entire purpose for ministering this word this morning is where then is this temple 
that's mentioned in our text. If our last temple was destroyed and there isn't one now, where is this temple? As I've already mentioned, the last temple to occupy real estate in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. That temple that Titus destroyed, here's a little history lesson for you, was known as the second temple. Not because there were two, but because it's the second one to have been built there in Jerusalem. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the first temple many, many years before that time in 587 B.C. So, so far, we have two temples. However, a third temple has yet to be built. This third temple is that temple, the one that John was instructed to build. So as we read at the end of our, the year of our Lord, 2021, as we read in our Bibles about a temple that John was commissioned to measure, we're reading about an event that cannot take now, has not taken place now, and will not take place until the future. Because there is no temple. Jesus addresses His disciples on this very matter. In Matthew chapter 24, 24, 1 and 2, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what the, the, the disciples were doing when they were calling Jesus' attention To the buildings. I don't know. I've never even heard anybody address it. I know what I think. And I can get kind of strange. And I know what I think they were doing. You see Jesus. He's walking along. He's leaving the temple. He's just outside the door. All his entourage, his 12, they're all like, (laughs) you know, these are country boys. We make our one trip to the city once a month, whether we need to or not. You know, one of those kind of people, right? They're all like, oh, whoa. That's where I see them. Not that stupid, but you understand. And they're looking and they're saying, Lord, look at this. Wow. And they're completely enthralled by everything they see. And because they're Jews... It's very impressive to them because this all points, all this development, all this wonderful place, this city, the city of David, this temple. Oh, my word, this is our God. Jesus, look. Wow. Tugging on his robe and he's like. And they draw his attention to this place. Jesus says, I love this. He says, Do you see all these things? He's like preparing them. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another until until every one will be thrown down. And they're like, huh? They're completely, and this is, like I said, this is my 
imagination working. They're completely blown away by this place, this experience, what they're seeing. The priesthood, the Jews running, all milling around. Everything It's just like, oh, this is so glorious. And that's how we see blessing. Did you see this? Look at this. Man. We measure blessing quantifiably by the things we have and the things we see. And yet this very Lord who says there will not be one stone left on top of another one is shortly to be crucified and die. And turn around and ask us to do the exact same thing. From a historical Kingdom perspective, there's got to be a Jewish temple in the end of this. Okay? That temple, the third temple, it's all got to happen. But let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. You and I, the Bible is explicit when it says, we don't need a temple of stone for you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And Jesus rocks their world to this thing that you are so enamored with that you accredit to God. I think that's important. It's all going to be laid waste because you aren't of God. Your temple will be eradicated because you aren't of God. Is right. In these verses here, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. In these verses, Jesus, while standing outside of the second temple that we just talked about, the second temple foretells of the events surrounding the destruction of the very temple he's standing outside of. And it will only take roughly 40 years, somewhere between 37 and 40 years, before that temple and what he just said and blew the minds of his disciples is going to happen. 40 years. Those events will eventually lead to the building of the third temple. Thirteen verses later, Jesus shifts gears and says this, So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Again, these verses right here, these verses were spoken by the Lord during the time of the second temple and speak of the third temple that is yet to be built during the great tribulation. Yes, the people of God, the children of God, historically, the Israelites, will build a temple during the great tribulation. Daniel said it this way. He, Daniel chapter 9, He, who's He? He's the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many 
for one seven. Okay. Now I know because I've experienced this. Words, sentences like that are just weird. They're just weird. They're hard to navigate and they're difficult to understand without a little help. My help comes from research. That's how I get it. So let me clarify something. The Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant. He's going to cut a covenant with many, many, lots of people. Okay? For one seven. Interpret the word seven as seven years. Okay? One seven is seven years. Okay? It's also known as, back in Daniel's days, one week. Okay? So that seven is specifically discussing a seven-year period or one week. Now, he goes on. He says, in the middle of the seven, in the middle of that seven years, in the middle of that one week, well, what's the middle of seven? Three and a half. Okay? So three and a half years into the seven years, halfway through this seven-year period, or halfway through what's known as the Great Tribulation. He, the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Period. He's going to put an end to it. And, you can almost read at that time, at the temple, he's ended sacrifice, he's ended the offerings. The Antichrist has done this. At that point in time, he sets up in the temple, he will set up an abomination. This is a very important phrase. And at the temple, he will set up, now look, an abomination that causes desolation. Whatever it is he sets up in the temple is the catalyst for desolation. Now look what it ends up here. Until... The end that is declared is poured out on him. So in other words, the Lord God has already a punishment established for this Antichrist. Because there is an end that is declared, is, that is decreed, that's going to be poured out on him. This end for the Antichrist, it's established. It's eternally established. And it will be poured out on him after this desolation has been happening. Now... We see that he ends the sacrifices and the offerings halfway through this one seven-year period is when he does this. Sets up this abomination that instigates, institutes, is the catalyst for the following desolation. Okay? So what we have is... Let's read it. He confirms a covenant with many. That's what our opening. He confirmed a covenant with many. I'm going to go back and try to get this right. Many is an alliance of nations. The Antichrist establishes an alliance with nations. A bunch of them. One of them is Israel. Okay? Everybody following me? He makes this covenant... For a whole bunch, he establishes, let's sign it on the night of the line, for seven years. Boom, ba-doom, boom, 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 boom. And a bunch of nations, along with the Antichrist, including Israel, sign the document. Okay, we have a, we have a covenant. Woohoo! This is going to be great. 
Well, halfway through that seven-year period, three and a half years in, he takes the entire thing and chucks it. Throws it out. And he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. You say, why? Why would he do that? Well, number one, he's demon-possessed, devil-possessed, antichrist. He doesn't like anything about God. And what has happened is the thing that we don't know about. Some things have happened in the Revelation. Remember I started this message like that? Some things have happened in the Revelation that I didn't refer to. Yeah. Anybody ever hear the words Gog and Magog? Okay. Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah. If you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll find out that a battle has occurred with a consortium of Muslim nations. Gog, and you do your own research on this, it's Russia. It's the great bear of the north. They have a agreement with, frankly, nations that are largely encircled the nation of Israel. Physically encircled. Not with just their military. Their land physically encircles Israel. There has, there's, they decide it's time to go to war and we're going to, we're going to eradicate Israel. They go down there and God does something that Israel can't and He completely flattens Russia and all the Muslim countries. Flattens them. They are no longer a threat for the rest of history. Which I'm going to admit is really short. Relatively speaking. Destroys them. Israel's like, whoo-hoo, go God, go God. Because now the very enemies that they have always faced no longer exist. And so the Antichrist, now we're back here in our Daniel 9 verse. The Antichrist establishes a covenant with many, a bunch of different Western European nations and stuff, and Israel. We're going to have a great time for the next seven years. Woohoo! Well, what does all that do? Well, do you remember our picture of the Dome of the Rock? Why would you want to have a Muslim mosque on the real estate that belongs to Israel rightfully and should have a temple there if there's no Muslim nations around to worry about? Make sense? So what, is, what do they do? They take the demo day, as they say on uh, home, what is it called? Home uh, DIY. Yeah, do-it-yourself and home remodeling shows. They take the, the demo crew to the dome of the mosque and it's just eradicated. It's now in the dump. Literally. They drive it to the dump and dump it out. And they build a temple. Because there's no Muslims around to worry about. Russia's not here. We don't care. And Russia has its fingers in all of the Muslim nations. So why don't we just build ourselves a temple? And they build themselves a temple. So now we have a place where Israel can literally reinstitute Judaism and the sacrifices. We literally have a new place to go. And what do they do? They start it up. 
keep in mind, these are Orthodox Jews. These are not Messianic Jews. These people do not believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in Jehovah God. They're still waiting on their Savior and are completely oblivious to the fact that He's orchestrating everything that they will experience over the next seven years. And so they start the sacrifices. Well, why would the Antichrist stop this? He signed a covenant. Well, because he's the devil. And he's sick and tired of Israel. And he's sick and tired of people paying attention to, Israel, to, to God Jehovah and making sacrifices to God Jehovah. And he says, enough of this. Three and a half years into this seven-year period. And he ends it. And then he does something a little over the top, even for the devil. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Until God takes him out. So what he does is he decides, okay, it's time to go. I'm going to take care of Israel once and for all. Goes in, ends the sacrifices, sets up an abomination, and from that point forward, all the horrors that Israel is going to experience happen now. And that's how it rolls. And he will do that for how long? The latter three and a half years of the one seven-year week. Henry Morris wrote this. He said, At the time of John's experience on Patmos, the magnificent temple that had once been the beauty of Jerusalem was merely a 25-year-old memory. John, in fact, had been present on the Mount of Olives when Christ had prophesied its destruction, saying, There shall not be left one, heat, one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. The prophecy had been fulfilled by the Roman armies in A.D. 70, as we have already covered. And yet the old prophets had written of the holy temple as it would be in the last days. Somehow, the temple must therefore someday be built again. He continues on, Though John could not know this when he wrote, over, and you can tell how old this quote is by this next number, over 19 centuries would come and go after his death before the temple would reappear. It's a little longer than that now. This holy city would be, quote, trodden down of the Gentiles, end quote, even seeing a Muslim mosque erected where the temple should be for year after long year. But one day it would be built again. And this is the temple in the book of the Revelation that John was allowed to see. End quote. Now I'm going to conclude. I'm going to shut this message down this morning so we can go about our holiday preparations and ponder the word of the Lord. One, wrote, one writer wrote this, quote, The relationship of the government to the Jews in Palestine had been deteriorating steadily. This is a retrospective. The revolt of the Jews in Palestine against Rome began in 66. 
the priest, led by Eleazar, stopped the sacrifices made in behalf of the emperor. And the war was on. Nero selected Vespasian to put down the revolt. Vespasian conquered uh, Galilee, and John of Gishala and his zealots fled to Jerusalem. Vespasian became emperor in 69, and his son Titus arrived at Jerusalem with Roman legions on April of the year 70. The siege lasted from April to September. On the, uh, on the 9th of Ab, that is August, the gates were burned and the temple was burned despite the orders to the contrary given by Titus. In Herod's place, palace on the western hill, John of Geshala held out. But the entire city was in the hands of Titus on the 8th of Elul in September. The war itself dragged on until 73, when Masada fell to Titus. Now, on the arch at Rome, Titus commemorated his victory with pictures of the temple treasures carried in procession. Vespasian, who was emperor from 69 through 79, was succeeded by his son Titus, who became emperor in 79 through 81. It was under Domitian, emperor from 81 to 96, in his last years that the persecutions of the Christians occurred. Which gave rise to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, to answer our question, where is this temple that is mentioned in our text? It is a future temple. One that hasn't been built yet. It will be the result of an agreement, a treaty between the Antichrist an alliance of Western nations and of Israel. It will have been erected at some point prior to chapter 11, where we are now. And, we will, and, uh, and will be built on the very spot that the two previous temples stood. With Russia and the Muslim nations no longer a problem, the Dome of the Rock will no longer exist having been torn down and replaced by this, the third and final temple. I hope this morning that I have accomplished my goal in establishing a framework, a foundation, some kind of uh, um, historic line by which we can understand what's happening here. Prior to where we are this morning, this temple exists. It's going to be after where we are sitting here this morning that it is erected. So there is an event coming. These events are real. And I hope today that we have a better understanding of what is actually going on and happening in the world during the apocalypse. Amen? Amen. Again, I will return to chapter 11 of the revelation of Jesus Christ on January 2nd. In the meantime... We're going to start really gearing up for our Christmas season and the celebration thereof, okay? This is my message this morning, Stand. Praise God. Please, in your day, remember 
uh, the Miles family, Rita and Jerry, remember Mike was in that. Be praying for them. Ask the Lord to minister. Um, as well as uh, we have Angel Tree this morning. 